Episode 61, Hey Love Podcast. Nobody knew that he beat me. He was behind closed doors. Well, that's where the change was most obvious when no one was looking. To where by the time he passed away, he was the guy I wanted to be just like, still like one of the godliest men I've ever known. That's amazing to hear you say that. Yeah. That whole season's kind of what set me on a war path for the gospel because if the gospel could change that dude, the gospel could change anybody. Welcome to Hey Love, engaging you, the reflective woman, in soul care, spirituality, and social spaces through the grid of God's grace. Here, it's all about relationships. Hey Love, I'm sure you've heard about this new movie. I'm sure you've seen all the previews. If not, I'm here to tell you Bart Millard's story is coming to the big screen this Friday, and it is a must-see, most definitely. It's the story behind the song that has meant so much to audiences all over the globe. I Can Only Imagine has been played and sung in countless funerals and has topped several charts, crossed over to different genres, won numerous awards, been digitally downloaded more than two million times. That's more than any other song in the history of Christian music ever. It catapulted Bart as a songwriter and skyrocketed the band Mercy Me to international acclaim. But when it all comes down, the song is a deeply personal, gut-wrenching heart cry from a grieving son for his beloved dad, who underwent a transformation right before his eyes, and then the young man lost his dad to cancer. For a few years, we called Imagine That Song. It's so haunting and powerful. The imagery and the feelings it evokes, it's so good, isn't it? I know you love it too. And now, the new version that they did for their new Mercy Me collection and for the film, you'll get to hear that at the very end of the film, the song takes a whole new feel. It sounds even more celebratory than it did 20 years ago when Bart first wrote the song at 2 in the morning one sleepless night on the Mercy Me bus. Earlier in the film, what you hear is the original version. You hear just hints of it throughout the film. Do you remember where you were when you first heard those lyrics? Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? On the movie soundtrack, the piano intro you hear throughout the movie is none other than my husband's. I think he's so cool. He had to play that intro about a hundred times. They did all these different takes. It's so fun to see the whole thing come together in the end. And what they have now is a motion picture that will stir you and take you right back to the first time you heard that song. The story of Bart and his relationship with his dad is the kind of story that makes a girl go, okay, there has to be a God. The theme throughout this movie, if you were to put it in one word, would have to be redemption. In fact, the opening scene has young Bart. He looks like he's about 10 years old, maybe 11. He's riding his bike into town to pick up some stuff at the junkyard. You get the sense that he's known all around this little bitty town for being the creative kid who can take discarded scraps that nobody else wants pieces of junk and and sort of has this way of turning them into something great, something glorious. And that is redemption. Also, later in the movie, he fixes up an old Jeep and then later tries to make right what he messed up with in his relationship with Shannon, his childhood sweetheart. Yeah, so the thread of redemption, of just taking something 
you know, that was messy. The thread of redemption just runs through the whole thing in a beautiful way. One of my favorite scenes from the movie was just so random. It's just this short little scene where Bart is asked by a bandmate how Scott Brickle, this big-time manager, knew to be in that particular hall in that particular small town to watch a Mercy Me concert. Bart answers him almost in passing. He says something like, well, maybe he's here because I've been writing him letters every week for the past two years. I laughed out loud in the theater because I feel like the filmmakers do such a good job of capturing the essence of Bart Millard, his ability to laugh and see the joy even when life is dealing out difficulty, his persistence through hard. You will love, love, love this movie. Bart confesses that he really was afraid that <laughs> that it would be cheesy, but it's not at all. We have a good laugh today. Actually, this was recorded a pair of minutes ago, a few weeks ago, really. But we laugh because over the years, see, I met Bart back in 1993. He was actually interviewing me for his college newspaper or some media thing. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I knew right away that we'd be friends. And But I would go like years without ever seeing him or talking to him. We were both, you know, doing the newlywed thing in our respective marriages. Then we started, you know, raising our own kids. Then, you know, he had this little career that he was building. <laughs> and then Blair ended up, um, he got to play on a few of the Mercy Me records. So I'd run into Bart here and there in the studio. He and my old friend Barry Grohl, who plays guitar in the band, and he used to play in the Rikua band back in the late 80s. I was a big fan of those guys in the big hair days. That was like a lifetime ago. In the outtakes at the end of this episode, I'm telling Bart about how my husband laughs at me because when I did start getting back in touch with Bart, I would text him like, 10 or 20 times to his one reply. I guess I've just gotten to the point where I really don't take stuff personally anymore, like rejection or (laughs) when a friend doesn't text me back right away. I know that my buddy Bart is busy with being a famous songwriter and sanger, as he says, and, you know, being a dad and a husband and he's got this band So I thought it'd be fun to just read you some of our ongoing text thread just to give you an idea what I'm talking about. I'm not going to go as far back as 1993, but just from like the last year or so, I'm going to skip around a little bit. So here's me texting Bart after he moved his family here. Hey, Bart, hope you and Shannon are loving your new Tennessee home. I'm launching a podcast and would like to interview you on there sometime. It's all about relationships. Then me again. Hey, Bart, can I interview you sometime this summer? A few weeks later. Hey, Bart, can I interview you sometime this fall? A few weeks later. Hey, Bart, can I interview you sometime this spring, maybe? (laughs) Then a few weeks later, either you're trapped under something heavy or you've changed your number because some crazy girl keeps asking you for an interview on our podcast. A few weeks later. Hey, Bart, have I reached pest status yet? And then Bart finally texts me back. You are not a pest, Carthy. We're just on tour, and we won't slow down till mid-June. So I answer him. Okay, okay, Bart, stop yelling. I'm right here. And I'm really busy, too, you know. I'm super important. A few weeks later. Me. Hey, Bart, I meant to text you in June, but forgot. I basically have no life, so just let me know when you have some free time. I know you have a lot of time to spare. Me again, a few weeks later. Hey, Bart, 
I promise that when I run into you once a year or so like I usually do, I won't give you a hard time about being the neighbor who never visits or the friend who never calls or the Christian brother who still owes me an interview from 25 years ago. No, I would never do that. Bart wrote me back in all caps. Who is this? Then I write back, ha ha, very funny, Bart. Then we do the interview, and of course he does great. And then we go see him at the premiere. Then after that, I text him and say, Bart, thanks for sending me your address. I promise that I will not sell it to any third parties. But I thought I should tell you, I may or may not have signed you up for the Cheese of the Month Club. I chose cheese because I knew you were concerned that your movie would be cheesy, but I assure you that there was absolutely no cheese factor in your movie whatsoever. You should be receiving your first shipment of fine cheeses next week. Hope you like it. Oh, crack me up. So we finally did get to do this interview, and I know that Bart has to be so impressed with how professionally you run things around here. First of all, he gets here seconds after our tree man gets here, so... Throughout the whole interview, you're going to be hearing a power saw going. It's this burly guy in nothing but overalls, and he's right outside our window, trimming my big, beautiful trees down to little tiny nubs. So you'll hear him loud and clear through the whole interview. Then my daughter interrupts to ask if she can go to the mall, so Bart has to move his car. Then my son has to leave for work, and Bart has to move his car again. Then the tree guy tries to leave. I think by the end of the interview, Bart had to move his car a total of three times. Okay, I know you're ready to hear this conversation, so let me just clarify one last thing so you know what he's talking about. Bart mentions a man named John Rivers, and you may know that he's the beloved DJ at K-Love Radio in Dallas. Huge radio station that puts on that cruise that Blair and I got to go on a couple months ago when Hey Love was on K-Love. So there you have it. Bart is going to start us off by talking about his childhood, growing up with his brother, Stephen. Catch you on the backside. The movie I'm excited about just because I'm just happy it turned out okay. And so, like, I get excited about, you know, like, you guys and people seeing it. Yes. I've only sat with a crowd, like, two other times to see it. But I've seen it, like, 30 times. But So everybody pretty much is going to ball. I don't know. I mean, I hope. I mean, I don't say I hope. I just hope they, I hope they can appreciate when it's over. Like, you know, I'm the worst critic of movies. Like, I'm so hypercritical of. Are you? Yeah. And so I was so nervous. And. And I'm just, I don't know if I'm just really close to it, but it's, I mean, it's obviously emotional for me, but it's not the cheesy. people that have seen it, I don't think, you can tell me <laughs> on Monday and you can, uh, please tell me. Well, tell us, Bart, about your childhood. Do you have a? Did you have siblings? Uh, just an older brother, five years older. So by the time I was in seventh grade, he had graduated high school and went to college, and so he was kind of, from that point on, kind of out of the picture. He'd come for holidays, but he was he was kind of gone. Was there a guy that you were best buddies with? Yeah, uh, probably from probably about fifth or sixth grade on. A guy named Kent Jones. He's still one of my best friends in the whole world. We first met. My parents divorced when I was three, and. Um, my mom remarried when I was in third grade, and my stepdad was transferred from Dallas, from Greenville, Texas, to San Antonio. And so they decided to keep my brother and me, keep us together, and live with our dad in Greenville, going to the same school, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so my dad, at some point, started going to like to the the singles class at church. And so <laughs> Kent's mom was in the singles class. So that's when we first met. And then you know, going into youth group and stuff, we just became inseparable for mm. for 
years and years and years and years. But yeah, he was, my dad was real abusive behind closed doors mm -hmm. and a, like a really bad and nobody really knew it. And mm. he was kind of the guy that would go to church and everybody loved him. Uh, my mom says that my personality when dad was, was, was fine or real similar, but then he had this, like, if he got embarrassed in public or if something just had a bad day, he would take it out of me since, mm. since as early as I can remember. And so yeah. I would, I would escape and stay at Kent's house as much as I could. Cause mm. I don't know if his mom ever actually knew, but she just seemed aware that, you know, you need to stay a little so. longer, that kind of thing. So mm. we never talked about it, but yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so I spent a lot of my childhood at Kent's Kent's house. You were the scapegoat. Yeah. You were yeah. the target. Yeah, he. Uh, it was weird because mm. my, it's a really weird situation, and that's kind of how this whole, you know, I can only imagine movie came about. Was uh, my dad was like an all-American football player in high school and college, and then wow. um, and then, um, like I was named after Bart Starr, like he was supposed to be drafted by the Packers and all this crazy stuff. And my dad was like a teddy bear, like they said, he was the sweetest guy ever. Mm. Well, when he was at SMU playing football, um, he hurt his knee or something and he had to quit football. Mm. So he came home, got married to mom, they had my brother, and then somewhere in there he was working for the highway department, basically started from the bottom up and was the flag guy that waves traffic through, you know? Wow. He got hit by a semi, and it launched him like 50 feet across the road. What? But because he was so big and strong, he didn't break any bones in his body, but he was in a coma for like eight weeks. And so, Holy moly. And, so, and, I've, and my mom told me the story. She's like, yeah, they had me sign all the stuff saying that, you know, we wouldn't revive him, you know, all that kind of junk. Oh. But, um, but he finally came to, and, but when he woke up, he was like a, literally a monster. Like they had to strap him down, took 12 people to hold him down. He instantly wow. started like, like catcalling the nurses and, and like mm. mom said, I've never heard your dad say a single cuss word. And he goes every other word. It was like it was a different person. Wow. The foulest language, the worst temper. And so mm. my mom said, she goes, I, she goes, I was married to the sweetest man ever. About, they were married for about 14 or six, I think 14 years. Oh. And she goes, I went home with a monster and he, be, he became real violent. He never laid a finger on her, but he'd, break, he'd like pick up this couch and throw it across the room <gasps> and like break stuff that was precious to her. Wow. And uh, she finally left because she was like, I don't know this man at all. Now, later on, much later, they think that he had that frontal lobe injury that they talk about in football now yeah. is a big bit of concussion Concussions. stuff. They think that's what it had. It had something to do with that. And you hear stories of old football players that become very like violent and stuff, and it wasn't Scary. their M.O. before. Oh. So my dad was, I never knew him any, any other way. When I came into the picture, uh, they got, they had me somewhere not long after the accident. And then when mom left, I, I don't know if he just kind of associated that with me because I was the new, mm. I was the new addition, but he never laid a finger on my brother as far as I know. Mm. But uh, just, uh, you know, from about third, and it was until about third grade when mom actually remarried, mm. moved away. And they decided to leave me. My, nobody, in fact, my dad had never laid a finger on me at that point, so nobody knew that he was abusive. Mm. But the second she left, my brother says I cried. I was a mama's boy. I cried every day for my mom, <sighs> and he would just he would, you know, hit me to shut me up after a while. Cause he couldn't take it, and Gosh. so we kind of. And so this went on until about sixth or seventh grade, and uh, and then I went through a growth spurt. So he, he didn't he didn't really hit me much, but emotionally just tore me apart. Mm. And, uh, and so, uh, gosh, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm like, I'm chasing rabbits here, but 
I think the question was my best friend Kent, but um, no, that's all part of this. Yeah. Well, anyway, so it's uh, he. uh, uh, In I guess it was this all went on until about my freshman year in high school, and my dad was diagnosed with uh, cancer, with uh, Mm. pancreatic cancer, and 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 moved into his liver and uh and and I what was crazy was is that. And I've always said this song. I've said this from stage before. Is it was bittersweet because part of me wanted it, it to be over, mm. but then at the same time, it's all—he was my dad. It's all I knew. No matter how bad he was. So you were stuck. Yeah. Emotionally. So I was devastated that he had cancer. But then I thought, man, maybe this—you know—it's. But it's—it's kind of like being blind at birth. Like I didn't know any better. You know, like. Wow. Like if because my dad had this kind of routine of when he would beat me. About an hour later, he'd have remorse, and then he would love on me and say, so sorry. And so you do that enough to a kid, the beating's worth it because you know that that affection's going to follow. And so, you know, so there was a season like fifth and sixth grade where I would actually steal money and do stuff knowing just so that I would get his attention. And it's crazy to think. It's crazy. As a parent, it's insane to think that kids think like that, but it's true because you're not able to process like what's happening. You just know that. You know, the attention, the affection is ultimately, ultimately what you want more than anything. You were starved. So, yeah. Mm. So freshman year of high school, so he's diagnosed. And then, um, and yeah, it was, it was really just a weird, a weird time just because, um, you know, I, you know, I just, just a lot of feelings of, because I'm, I'm getting to a point where I'm starting to understand, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a man and understanding what's going on and becoming very bitter about it. And, yeah, um, I was gonna say. And then that was kind of the beginning of my dad, like genuinely falling in love with Jesus. And mm. but I didn't trust him. I didn't want grace to be for him. Like I was probably mm. the most reluctant of them all. You know, rightfully so. Mm. But the change was kind of undeniable. Like it wasn't. He didn't start like preaching on a street corner or anything like that. But it was. You know, nobody knew that he beat me. It was behind closed doors. Well, that's where the change was most obvious when no one was looking. Like mm. it was like. Where he could have gotten away with not being that person, mm. you know, I would come home at night and he'd be, you know, pr- I could hear him through the walls praying for my brother and me and my mom. He divorced when I was three and like nightly wow. and bringing himself to tears. And it wasn't like he's saying it loud enough to make sure I can hear him. He doesn't know I'm home and I'm like, what's going on? And oh. I didn't know we owned a Bible in the house except for the giant family Bible. Uh, and then there'd be nights I would find him, you know, he'd fall asleep with his face in the Word and. I'm the youth group kid. Like I'm, I'm, I'm literally raised by the church, and I'm mm. kind of. So I'm like, what? You know, at first I thought he's trying to do this to get to me, like trying to show him that he's trying. But it was mm. really, looking back, it wasn't that at all. Like he was oblivious it to whether was I was real. walking the house or not. Yeah. And so it literally, he was diagnosed my freshman year in high school. He passed away my freshman year in college. And so, like, the transformation was was a, uh, it was unbelievable. Like mm. I've never, I, I could, I can honestly say I've probably. I've never seen it before and I've rarely seen it since that mm. to see someone change like that. I, well, I've never seen it since. I've never been able to be in someone's life that long and that close to it other than my own kids. But what he went through, I've just never seen. And to where yeah. by the time he passed away, he was the guy I wanted to be just like when I grew I mean, he's still like one of the godliest men I've ever known. That's amazing yeah. to hear you say that. Yeah. And it was after all that. Yeah. And it was, it was, but it took, I mean, you, you understand it's like there's so much to it. Like, um, when my my junior years, when he started to uh, he started to kind of he went from about three he was almost four hundred pounds to about one hundred and twelve pounds when he passed away and uh, oh. and so during about my junior year is when it, the cancer really started getting a little more aggressive and um and he um 
we, uh, we'd have hospice come in and out because you never wanted to go to the hospital. And it wasn't oh. full-time, but every once in a while if he had a bad spell, normally around chemo, and he'd have a day mm. hospice nurse and one that would come during the night. And mm. somewhere along the way, the night nurse, a guy named Tom, I believe, was killed in a car accident. And, and it was very Tragedy traumatic upon. on my dad's health. Like, he took a downward turn back quickly. And I remember him, him just saying, I can't do that anymore. I, I don't, I, you know, like, he, he wanted to shut everybody out. He mm. couldn't, it was, like, he felt like he shaved years off his life, and it probably did. And, uh, oh. and so the day nurse was a good friend of my dad, and I went to high school with his, oh, grew up with her daughter. She's a real good friend. Mm-hmm. So she broke all of the rules and said, okay, look, she was, I'm going to file the, fill the paperwork out saying that he only needs a day nurse, and I'm going to teach you how to take care of your dad at night. Wow. And so, uh, and, she, and, so, and he had this medicine. I don't know if it was chemo. I don't remember what the medicine was, but there's real thick caulk stuff that had to be pushed through his IV, and it literally took about two hours to push it through because it was so thick. Wow. And he could only take so much. And, um, and you're like a teenager. Yeah, I'm a junior in high school. And, uh, and so about two to four every night, give or take, Every night I would go in and, and sit there and for two hours push it through. And, um, and, and you had school the next day. Yeah, yeah. But well, and, and the thing was, like, it was so traumatic. At this point, like, I'm mm. like, you know, my dad was like, I don't want anybody else to do it. And he was, he was just in a bad place. And so it's like mm. I wanted to do it. And, um, mm. and so, um, wow. um, you know, this probably would have been probably the beginning of my senior year because it wasn't a full year that I did it. So this is closer to my senior year when the med- we started doing the medicine. And... Um, What's crazy is during that that year, um, we are forced to have these amazing conversations for at least two hours every <laughs> single night. Amazing. And like from everything to what to do after I'm gone, who you should oh. or shouldn't be dating, how to write a how to balance a checkbook. What a gift. Uh, you know, like you know, yeah, like why do you wash whites with whites and colors <laughs> with color? I mean, it was literally like life's instruction books every night. That's crazy. And it was like, and it wasn't really, I mean, we weren't planners. He would just lay there and just after two hours, you just, you, you, if you talk, I'm telling you, if you sit down with a kid for two hours straight and you have nowhere else to go, after a while you're like, hmm, oh yeah, be sure to use belief. Like you just start coming up with stuff. And, That's uh, amazing. And oh, so that went on most wow. of my senior year. And, well, tell um, me this. Can I back up a little bit? Yeah, just, yeah, sure. How would you ever explain, or can you explain a transformation like that? In a man, uh, explain it. Uh, like, uh, what? How do you mean? Like, like, uh, or, like, is there any way outside of the Holy Spirit that somebody can change like that? Uh, no. In fact, I mean, the only way I've ever—it's not even explaining it, but I've always said like that whole season's kind of what set me on a war path for the gospel. Because if the gospel could change that dude, gospel wow. can change anybody. And it's That's like strong. And it's it's. Um, yeah, there's, 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 there's sometimes in life there are things that, uh, like we we kind of we've always the bands always call them the unexplainables these things that happen and it's like there's no logical explanation other than God had His hand on this and mm-hmm. sometimes you start like developing a fix on those moments and you you, you crave crave them more and more mm. and uh, I would definitely chalk that up as an unexplainable as far as no I never saw doubt. it coming you know I don't I don't I mean I couldn't even tell you all the details of what took place. With him alone with God over those few years, I just oh. kept seeing the result of whatever was happening with him. And, and what a gift that you were given those nights in the wee hours. Yeah. With yeah, him. Yeah, it's yeah, and it's Amazing. and at the time, you know, especially and you've, I mean, you've already, 
you've already raised a boy, so you know <laughs> the, those are the years to where it's like they think they know everything. To get them to say anything is is a victory. Yes. Willing to talk or whatever. This is before phones and social media, but it's just like, and so like even though part of me is reluctant, just to be forced to sit there. I'm sure the first few times we did it, of the two hours, an hour and forty five minutes, it was silence of like mm -hmm. I didn't you know nothing. We didn't do anything. Nothing. Whatever. Because you were bitter and, at first. Yeah, and just and just you know and just it's just hard to get a 16, 17 year old kid to talk to their parents sometimes. Mm -hmm. But then you do it enough, and I, I you know I think it's. Ultimately, I think it's a trust issue, you know, even though my kids trust me with their lives, at the same time, you know, there's a part of Sam right now, my oldest who's 15, that he trusts me, but he, to talk about the things that are important to him, he doesn't trust that I see them as important. And mm -hmm. so he's, so teenagers are hesitant to talk to their parents sometimes. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, because I've probably, and we've all made these, you know, remarks of like, well, Instagram will, is a waste of time or whatever. Well, to him, <laughs> that's his world. Right. So if you think it's a joke, then I'm not going to tell you about what's important to me. Right. If video games are a waste of time, that's my world or whatever it is. And so right. the things that I say as a parent, I don't even realize the impact they're making mm. just kind of tears the trust away to where he's even said that too. He's like, man, there are things we can talk about. We can talk about music all day long. Mm. But, you know, you know, I was, he was 12 when he liked his first girlfriend or girl. Mm. And just from me going, that's so cute and squeezing his cheeks. He's like, I, there's no way I'm going to talk to you about this yet. So I have to earn his trust to make him realize, hey, I know wow. this is a big deal. That's so, a really good point. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's just if they don't <laughs> believe that we think what that what they think is important is important, then why would they tell us? And so, and I was in the same boat with my dad. It was like, mm. you know, there's so, I mean, it's so funny. I'm so glad you get to see the movie soon because it's, oh, it's I can't wait. A, you know, it's a lot of that's kind of, it, it touches on a lot of stuff. It's so amazing. So do you remember one time when your dad did really validate something you were sharing and you felt like, oh, he gets me. Yeah, I'm going to give away part of the movie. But um, yeah, my whole life was my dad chased his dreams in football and then, to have him end abruptly with his injury or whatever the case was, was hard for him because it was from that to never made more than $21,000 a year working for the highway department for the rest of his life. Mm. And so chasing any kind of a dream was a waste of time to him. Mm. And like, so like, a, you know, my, my role was to go to college, graduate college because he didn't, mm. get a legitimate job and just do better than he did mm -hmm. and be able to support a family. And, mm -hmm. and so when a, and uh, I played football, and you know I played football in high school, and uh, I broke both my ankles on a play and had to quit football. And choir was the only class available, and mm -hmm. so that was the first time where I found an amazing teacher that made me realize that I had a gift. And Yay. so, but in that, my dad was like, because my, you know, it's kind of like at the time my voice hadn't changed yet, and so I was a late <laughs> puberty kind of guy. So I was singing like in the alto, so it was kind of embarrassing but to be a big football player. And, and, and he was like choir. Well, he just, yeah, the whole thing was just weird. And so then I fell in love with singing. And wow. so, you know, unless your husband or you are a musician, like you guys are an exception <laughs> to the rule, or me too, but for a normal family to walk in and go, I want to be a singer. <laughs> like, okay, tell me, that's what, you, what, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be a singer. That's like the um, most terrifying thing you could say to a parent. Right. There's no degree for singer. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's like such a scary thing to say, you know? It's like, yes. and so that's kind of the way I was with my dad. And he was like, that is a, that is a waste of time. Your, your <laughs> dreams are only here to disappoint. You need to get do a stable, you know, blah, blah, blah. Find oh, a plan yeah. B. And so most of our fights, like, you know, I remember, you know, 
in, in the movie, there's a scene that uh, um, where we're ar we're arguing about two things. In real life, the the thing with the movie, there's a lot of the scenes in the movie are from weeks and weeks of them interviewing me. And in real life, it goes from like third grade to my freshman year in college. Wow. But in the movie, that's a long movie. It's so everything in the movie gets mashed up into like my junior, senior high school. Or, you know, mm -hmm. they'll have flashbacks, but everybody, everything's compressed in a shorter time frame so they can get it all in. Mm -hmm. it's, that's they call Hollywooding it, the movie. <laughs> but the moments that happen in the movie are real. It's just, you know, the time frame may be different from my real life. And so there's a scene in the movie where he, he breaks a plate over my head and we get in this big fight. Mm. And I think in the movie it's about I'm, I'm going to sing at church and he's saying it's, it's a waste, it's, don't chase your dreams. And I get really mad about how I'm so tired of you making fun of me and all this kind of stuff. And, it be, and a big fight ensues. In mm. real life, it was about two things. One, I was dating a girl that was Church of Christ, which was bad news for a Southern Baptist at the time. <laughs> and then, and the other was that I wanted to, like, whenever you go, what are you going to do with your life? I would literally say, I'm going to be a singer. Just to be a smart butt. I, I just, and it would make him so mad. Like, what, a choir teacher? No, I'm a singer. Just because I didn't want to talk to him about it. And that was one of our fights. And so, oh my yeah, goodness. yeah. So that's, yes, there was, that's a, a huge part of, he would always tell me it was a waste of time. Wouldn't come hear me sing for a while. Mm. And then um, by the time, literally about a month or maybe two months before he passed away, before he kind of, kind of went into a coma-like state. One of the last conversations we had was um, was him saying, you know, I've always, and it's, and it's in the movie too, like he, I've always told you to to never chase your dreams and that stuff. And he goes, don't listen to me. You're nothing mm -hmm. like me. And he goes, you can do anything you want. And, mm -hmm. uh, and he literally, it's so funny because he had like a pension fund and it wasn't much, but he had a pension fund and he had already, yeah, I didn't know it, but he said, I already set it up to where like, Normally, you would get a lump sum, like a big check you and your brother would. But I know you'd probably buy a boat and be broke in like two months. So <laughs> I set it up to where you'll get, I think it was like $600 a month for 10 years. Aww. And he goes, and so he goes, it's not much, but use, I mean, whatever you do, use it to, to get whatever you're, just whatever it is you're dreaming in your head. Wow. I want you to go after it. And mm. so what's crazy, what's insane is, is that the very last check came the week Imagine went number one. Oh, yeah. No, and uh, the same week amazing. that my the, the same week that Sam came home from the hospital, oh. I was holding in my arms. I was on hold with John Rivers doing an interview. It was the first week of January, January fourth. Mm. And I'm holding Sam. I'm on hold, and Shannon walks in. He goes, "Last check." And you know, as a newlywed, six hundred dollars gone all of a sudden after ten years is a big chunk. It's like, what are oh. we going to do? So I'm holding a check. I'm holding a baby that's worth more than $600 a month. <laughs> and John gets on. He's like, hey, man, sorry to put on your hold. I wanted to congratulate you that Imagine's number one song Christian music. And I started sobbing. Oh. So to John, he's thinking, this dude is like, not just crying, like, couldn't talk. And he's like, this dude's a really big Christian music fan, which I am, <laughs> but not. And I was like, you don't understand. You don't understand. I was trying to tell him, like, I'm holding oh. a baby. And I, when I finally explained it to him, he started crying. And it was. Wow. But yeah, it was crazy. And my dad said, he goes, I don't know how it all works, but somehow I'll still be trying to take care of you when the money runs out. was the last thing he told me. So beautiful. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, oh, that is so touching. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, it's been a. Love that. Yeah, it's really. But yeah, that was. You ask, like, is there something that he, you know, was kind of against and told me not to go after and then to kind of rectify that. Yeah, it was a huge, I mean, I wouldn't be doing what, I was, what I'm doing now if it wasn't for him saying, giving his validation and 
He turned Let me into go your after it. biggest cheerleader. Yeah, he really did. Yeah. And supported you even after he was gone. That <laughs> yeah. is just... Oh, yeah, the movie's going to wreck you on that. Oh, so, yeah. I cannot <laughs> even stand the thought. I, wow, I'm going to sit way in the back. <laughs> who was one woman who helped shape your character? Mm, uh, my grandmother. My, both my grandmothers. Which one named the band? My mom Millard, my dad's mom, mm -hmm. said, Mercy me, why don't you get a real job? When I told her I was going to, she was paying for my college and I was going to take a semester, <laughs> semester off to, because I was doing terribly in college. I was taking a semester off because the worship band at the church in Florida I was at was, was getting busy. And so mm -hmm. I said, I'm one semester and I'm going to go back. She goes, why are you taking off? And I was like, I think I'm starting a band. And she's like, Mercy me, why don't you get a real job? That's yeah. such a great line. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, so she, her and my mom's mom, Mama Lindsay, she was like the godliest woman I've ever known. Mm. And, uh, and just through, she had it, she went through a really, <coughs> excuse me, a really, like her, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. They were married for almost 50 years. And then he ran off with her best friend, who was like another member in the church. What? Right before I was born. No. And what's crazy is, is when he left, the like they had five kids, I believe. Oh. And I think all but one, maybe two, all but one, their marriages fell apart once, like like when the foundation cracked, so to speak. Man. Including my mom and everything, but he went off. Uh, oh. He stayed with this lady until he passed away, like in 97, 98. But I, I only met him like twice in my life. But Mama, Lindsay, she never remarried. She always kept saying her prodigal was going to come back to her. And, uh, mm. and she would, if you said an ill word about Papa, she would knock you out. Like it was, you would never say it at one. amazing. Well, no, what's amazing is, and so when Papa died, um, for whatever reason, my cousin and me had to go tell Momo. And at this point, she's cataracts real bad. Her hand, arthritis is bad. She she's in a wheelchair. Mm. And so we walked in, and uh, and um, we're like we're like Momo, and she said Lloyd died, didn't he? <gasps> and it was. I mean, I, I we probably hadn't talked about him in years. And uh, and she I just knew. I knew what he meant to her, so I started crying. I said, Yes, ma'am, he did. And she's kind of sit there, and she was kind of looking off. She goes, Well. Well, well, I started crying, and she grabbed me. and goes, "Hey, hey, hey!" She goes, "There's only two men that I've that I've loved in my life. One is Jesus, and one is your papa. And I'm better the second leave me than the first. Oh. And I'm sitting there going, "Really? That's what she?" And then, and then, literally, the last thing she said about it, she took a deep breath. She goes, "Well, I guess I'm too old to start dating." And then she what a woman. Yeah, and she passed away about a year and a half later. Yeah, that crazy, just... crazy. She died Christmas of '99. Yeah. <sighs> and uh, yeah, she was just through who she, her character through all I've ever known my entire life was, you would have never known that a bad thing had ever happened to that woman. And she just loved Jesus and, and wow. you know, and, and it was, un I've never seen her angry, um, you know, yeah. Man. So that was pretty insane. So can you tell me a little bit about your mom? Is she still living? Yeah, yeah. My mom, uh. When she left, like, mm -hmm. what, what is that like? Uh, well, it, what's funny that you ask that, when they were interviewing me for the movie, they kept asking me, what did you feel when this, this, and this had happened? And so I was telling them, well, as a third grader, I felt this. And so one of them was when my mom, 
My mom, they divorced when I was three. She married briefly for about six months into a, a guy that was incre- an alcoholic that was incredibly abusive, mm. broke her arm, didn't find out until mm. I was an adult that it had happened. She said she slipped on the ice. Mm. Only married for about six months. And she would say that was to fill a void of being so lonely because the whole, you know, when, when the woman leaves back in the 70s, it's obviously her fault. Nobody knew how bad it was with him. Why would you leave such a good thing? And so it's kind of like the whole city, the small town turned on her. And, and she, you know, turned to depression medication. Just, it was really rough. And, uh, wow. And then she met her. And she met her. Hey, man, how are you? Good. She, then she, her third husband, Lawrence, who's, who she married when I was in third grade, was a great guy. She was married to him until he passed away, like, in the mid-'90s. But he's the one that got transferred to San Antonio. Well, not knowing at the time, but... All of our family lived really close, and my understanding as an adult much later in life was that all of them kind of thought that, well, she's on her third marriage, dad's never remarried, she's unstable, it's obviously her fault, blah, blah, mm. blah, and she, I think she kind of got bullied into leaving us with dad, like, you're wow. the unstable move, you go do whatever you got to do, but they're staying with us, wow. and she caved, she gave in, and uh, and so when I remember her leaving, and mm. and and... I was a mama's boy, so in third grade, like it felt like complete abandonment, like heartbroken. Oh, yeah. So when they're asking me in the movie, like, "Hey, how did you feel?" Well, I felt abandoned. Well, mm. man, the first edit, the first script that came out was like, I read it, and it was like, my it was like my mom leaving me in a basket at a, for, a foster home. Oh, dear. It's, it's what it felt like, and I was like, "No, no, you're gonna kill her. You got no, no, no. You, you asked me what I felt like as an adult. I understand what happened. Sure. You know? And so, and and you know, and there's. You know, I mean, she she moved out of third grade. Um, I would see her on holidays because it was about six hours apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, in sixth grade, when I got really, when I was stealing money from my dad and he was thought he was going to kill me, oh. he sent me to live with her in sixth grade. And what's crazy is I was so depressed and missed being home with my dad. Like, like it was in San Antonio, it was the safest place I could have been, and she, no one could have taken care of me better than they did. But I don't know if it's like an abusive wife going back to that. I, wow, I, I missed. You wanted to go back. I just missed my brother. I missed. I missed Aww. all of my family. I mean, it, literally, like my dad wasn't very good at it, and so it took a village to raise me. So I missed. Mm. I went from twenty people taking me in mm. to my mom being with me when she got off work, mm. and so it was hard. And a stepdad that I didn't dislike, but he was my stepdad. You know, mm. why are you? Why are you married my mom? You know, that mm. kind of thing. So. My mom was wow. my mom was my mom was amazing to me, but mm. just not there. Mm. And uh, and so physically, yeah, yeah. And so I moved back in seventh grade, and that and like I said, I I said because I went through a growth spurt, and it just dawned on me that's partially true, but also just something changed when I moved back. Like he was mm. still emotionally, he would still take shots at me, but he never hit me after I came back. We got in one fight in high school, but. Um, he never like disciplined me or whatever you want to call it after I moved back. I don't know yeah. if it's because I was about a foot and a half taller or just, I mean, he wanted me back. Steven said the first time I ever saw dad cry was when you left, oh. which is really weird, you know? And, and I, I will tell you like from the head injury and that kind of stuff, like Steven, he had my older brother, my brother, he had observations that I never had, but he was like, when dad would beat you and send you your room, he goes, he'd be on the verge of tears. And he goes, and it was like a, it, almost like the Incredible Hulk, like he had something in him he couldn't control. He gets mm. so mad at himself, mm. and so and and uh, he's not the only one that's ever told me that. Like um, my dad dated a girl named Jerry from like for most of my life. She was the coolest lady ever, 
He wouldn't marry her because he, when he found he had cancer, he thought it would be just a burden on her. So mm-hmm. he wouldn't marry. I wish he would have because when he died, she went to an empty house where she could have stayed with us. Aww. But um, anyway, but and she used to always tell me. She was the one that could tame the beast, so to speak. And she was like, I wish you knew how much your dad would cry over you. She was wow. a big part of me seeing the transformation during high school. Because she would tell me, these are the things that are happening when you're not here. And Anyway, so, um, but yeah. So it, just wait, before you go on, like when you talk about your dad maybe had that brain injury, mm-hmm. did he ever have any kind of treatment or surgery for that? Or this was completely from a spiritual place inside out, the change? The, uh, you, mean, uh, you mean when, in high school when it transformed? Or? Yeah, when you started seeing the change, like he was really repentant. Yeah, you know what's crazy about that is is that um, of all people, it's really weird, but like when we were making the movie, you know, Dennis Quaid plays my dad, and so he had a ton of questions for me because my dad's not there to answer them. He didn't, and so he got into asking about the head injury and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, and never in my life had it ever dawned on me, but I'm tell, I was telling Dennis, I was like, you know, and Dennis kind of grew up in the church, I think. His mom's still alive, a godly woman. I don't know what mm. his... He grew up in Houston, and I don't know what his situation is, but something resonated with him in this movie, like maybe with his own dad. Wow. And um, and so I was telling him, I was like, look, dude, I said, I don't know how to explain it. I said, but my dad just fell in love with Jesus, and his heart changed. I said, he went from being this, you know, just spiritually, he, he just, he went from being this nobody, just giant of a man spiritually. And, oh. and, no, and, and, and Dennis just kind of stopped for a second. He goes, have you ever realized that, that I mean, and in a way, God physically transformed him. Like he gave him the ability to, like something that could never be overcome, you never saw it again. And I mean, like, thanks, Dennis Quaid. It's like, and all of a sudden I'm in tears because I'd never, I'd oh. never thought of the physical, I, it never dawned on me. Because I was just like, yeah, my dad was different. And I was mm. like, and then as I was telling him and doing interviews going, man, the things he were doing he, that he did before he couldn't control. And Dennis was like, how come he could all of a sudden control it in high school unless mm. God physically changed him? And I was like, oh, my gosh. God's That's way bigger than crazy. He's twice as big as I didn't think he was. You know, I kind love of thing. It's it. Like, yeah, so I think there, there absolutely is wow. a physical. That, there, there's no other. It's just unexplainable. There's no other solution. Like uh, everything. some kind of Yes, he was genuinely transformed. <gasps> in a, Woo! Yeah. That's so strong. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so you were telling me about... Oh, my mom. I think we're still talking about your mom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yes, my I felt abandoned. Uh, it wasn't until... And I lived as if I'd been abandoned most of my life, very bitter towards my mom. And did they correct that in the movie, in the script? As, so, much, as, as much as they can. They because still the problem is, is that we can't... Um, like, if I, if I just pretend that she was always there, that's not true. Right. And so... <clears throat> the way they originally had it was that she takes me to camp, drops me off, I never see her again. Ouch. And there, there is, there's not, there's a little truth to that, just from the standpoint. My mom convinced me to go to camp just to get away from my dad, and it was bad. And so my first time to go to camp, it wasn't even youth groups, like day camp, was because she wanted to get me out of the house. And mm. and um, in the script, original script, it looks very um, premeditated, driving to camp, you know I love you, you know, like, you know, if anybody comes at you, run, run, blah, blah, blah. And then she's gone. I was like, no, 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 no. You understand? Like, like <sighs> And so in the movie, what, uh, how it Poor is kid. now is that, you know, it's nothing's premeditated. Like, she's just, she's heartbroken that she has to send me to camp for these reasons. Like, just because to get away from my dad. 
But then it's it's kind of it leads you to believe that something bad happened while I was at camp, mm. because there's there's no there's nothing in her that makes you think she's leaving. Mm. But then when I come up from camp, they're moving vans, which coming from my grandmother's when I was a kid, Phew. the day she left, we're moving vans, and you know she kind of she kind of said her goodbyes like either the night before that we had a long talk, mm. and then and when she actually left. She, it was too hard for her to bear. Mm. And so she went ahead and the moving vans came and got stuff and left. And so there was this image as a kid of the moving vans, the last thing I see and not her. And I'm oh. yelling, I'm sorry to the moving vans. Oh my God. And really as a third grader thinking maybe she's in the driver's seat, maybe she's in the cab and not getting out, not knowing that she was already six hours ahead of the, she you know, gone already. they already moved, but she did say her goodbyes the night before, but that doesn't, you know, I'm like, you're back. There's vans here. You know, you're taking the stuff. So anyway, so that I come up in the movie. I come up from camp. Uh, I walk in. Dad's sitting in a chair, and I'm like, "Where's mommy? She's gone." And they're moving stuff mm. out. And so, and this really did happen. And so, I get between him and the football game he's watching. I'm like, "What did you do to her?" He's like, "Are you bowing up at me?" I was like, "You hurt her like you hurt me." And so it's me kind of defending her honor. Mm. That was kind of put back into the story. Of just leading you to believe that whatever happened, she, she she's more a victim than you knew she had to get out. Like this mm-hmm. guy is so bad, she had to leave. Mm-hmm. You'll see it on Monday. I hope that's that. That was the goal. When I've seen it, and my mom has seen Farts. the movie. My, I took the movie to mom and showed her. And you know, my fear was that I figured my brother would like the movie. My mom would have a problem with it. And what's funny is my mom just the whole time he said, like she that's that's how it happened. Or if it was something that was kind of embellished, like. Mm-hmm. Three fights into one or whatever, she'd go. He could have done that. That's like he may so have done that. So it's pretty true. To oh yeah, she's like life. there was there was no time. Like if he didn't literally shoot a gun in the air or whatever it was, she was like he was very much that doesn't surprise. Like it kind of creeped her out how much Dennis they captured. It reminded her of him. Wow. And uh, and so when it was over, she loved it. And the thing is, in the movie, she's in the first fifteen minutes, mm. and that's it. She's mm. not in the movie anymore because that's just in real life. Mm. You know, I, she just wasn't around except for, you know, until my kids, until Stephen's kids were born, she moved back. Her husband passed away. She moved back to Dallas. And from um, when Stephen's first daughter, his first child was born, right just a month and a half after dad died. Mm. Um, well, I, I appreciate, I feel like I'm hearing you <coughs> extend understanding and grace. Have you forgiven her for leaving? Um, yes. Even though you... Yes, I say that yes because I'm learning that that I'm probably going to be forgiving my dad and my mom of things for the rest of my life mm-hmm. as they as like they surface layer upon layer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think the problem was is that as every good Southern Baptist growing up, is there's supposed to be this one fail safe answer and like you know, well that's it, we got it, move on. And it's like no, it's not that. It's this. It's a process. You know, yeah, it's a process. And so and so like. Um, you know, there was so much I'd forgiven my dad where he was my hero when, when he passed away, but it wasn't until I became a father of all the things that I realized, or when oh. when I almost lost my, when I almost lost Shannon at some point, oh. the marriage is, you know, marriage, you know, we're super successful. Our marriage is hanging on by a thread at times yeah. to where I realized how much it was connected and what, mm. you know, how much I'd buried because the second you die, you become a saint and all mm. the bad things you are go away with it and mm-hmm. can't talk ill of him. He's gone, you know. So you had to un like all that stuff came bubbling up oh, to the surface. Oh, been unpacking it for years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and so the thing is, the flip side of that is when they die, you're more forgiving. My mom is very much alive and very healthy, and and so, Good. 
it has been it, it it's been a um probably in the last five or six years when it just kind of I went through this kind of big spiritual shift, not just with my dad or my mom or whatever, just everything kind of was about to fall apart and mm. tried to quit the band and mm. and all the stuff and just I was just done with everything and um and up until that point, just my relationship with mom specifically was a she would come around to see the kids. We'd be in the same room. I'd never say a word to her. Like it just, it, I was just, it wasn't even like I was mad. I was numb to it. It's like, this wow. is what it is. And this is what, and like, I've never, I don't recall it being more than this. Hmm. And why would I want to start now? Like it's hmm. kind of, I was very bitter and, and, and not even bitter. I can't even say I was bitter. I was just flatlined to it. Just like wow. she's in the room, you know, you know, she could be a chair to me. It doesn't make any difference oh. because I'd never, you know, and it was, and it was, it was, I mean, it was, gut-wrenching for her mm, but uh you know and so it wasn't until my wife would say it wasn't until I started feeling again it was about six years ago to where mm. uh you know the same time I started unpacking you know my relationship with my dad and and then you know and just she you know became a Shannon said I became a parent and a husband again and like I went through a gosh there's so much that you just that um that's happened in my life like in our marriage that that um mm has played a huge part in who I am now and just the ability to even want to forgive or engage with my mother, have her in my life. Ooh, real cliffhanger there. Are you excited to see this movie now? It's the kind you want to bring all your friends to. I'm serious, young, old, whether they're believers or not believers, it has a really wide appeal. And it makes you really appreciate your close relationships. Bart talks about his dad being his hero now. There's no other explanation for this sort of change, short of a supernatural transformation taking place. No person can conjure up changes like that. It's just not humanly possible. Wasn't it great that Dennis Quaid was the one who pointed it out to Bart that God, if God is able to spiritually heal somebody, he's certainly able to physically heal their brain injury too. Well, go see the movie over the weekend. Tell all your friends to see it. Then tune in next week. He's going to talk a lot more about his relationship with his wife, Shannon, and his kids next time. I'll tell you, I have the utmost admiration for Shannon Millard. She, what a woman. From what I know, it's evident that The woman has not struggled with codependency at all. She was able to say no to Bart when he wanted to just smooth things over. And then, again, years later, when they were in a really dark place in their marriage, she actually chose to leave everything she knew in Texas. She left it all behind so that she and her husband could leave and cleave and struggle well together. I have such respect for her, for both Shannon and Bart as a couple. Here's a teaser from next week's part two of this conversation. I was the one that was like, we can move back in a second. She was like, no, we're not doing it. Because I thought she was always one that's wanted to not leave her parents. And then it was a flip. She goes, we need to do this. Mm. And I thought she would chicken out on us. I thought we'd get here. No way. Because it, it was hard. I knew people all over the place. She was getting to know people, not just as Bart's wife, but make friends. And, and, she, and there were times for me, I'm like, I'm not happy unless you're happy. So when I'm on the road, knowing you're taken care of with family, that's good for me. Ah. She was like, it's not good for me. And she was like, this is where we're supposed to be. 
If you haven't subscribed yet to this podcast, what are you waiting for? Hit that little purple button and that way you'll be sure not to miss a thing. The episodes will be coming right to your feed directly every week. Easy. And remember, stay tuned past the outro music today for the outtakes. Once again, love, if you find any comfort in these sound waves or any encouragement here, please consider partnering with us as we prepare to go to India. My daughter, Davy and I, you know, as you know, she was adopted from there. I'm beyond excited about going home, and I will keep you informed on the plans for that trip. Right now, the best way that you can help us is start rounding up some gently used dresses from your daughter's closet for the orphanage. Read about this on my website, heylovepodcast.com, and you'll see why we're collecting these dresses. Also, you can donate toward the trip there to help us with shipping. We'll send the dresses ahead so we don't have to carry them through customs or anything. Write me if you have any questions, heylovepodcast at gmail.com. I'm trying to answer email on a regular weekly basis. So if you email me and you don't hear back right away, please don't give up on me. I'm trying. Secondly, if you enjoyed this episode, pass it on to a friend. That helps in lots of different ways. We don't have a network or advertiser or anything like that. We just are a small, independent husband and wife team working out of our linen closet. I try to It's like I'm trying to make it sound as pathetic as possible. And of course, as always, another way you can help us out is leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Just go to the search field on podcast and type in Hey Love, all one word. And while you're there, go ahead and leave a review about an episode that you enjoyed. Don't forget about the outtakes. Come back next week. Till then, bye love. My thanks to the heroic, handsome, most talented rock star, keyboard player, producer, engineer extraordinaire, and my best friend, Blair Masters, for setting it all to music. And thank you for joining us. Come on back, and we'll talk more about how you can find your happy by living life more connected. So I sent him a link to Blair's episode, and I said, Hey, Bart, you should listen to my interview with Blair. I think you'll get a kick out of this. I mispronounced your name twice. You should do an interview with me on my podcast so you can set me straight on the proper pronunciation of your name. Okay, bye. Me again. Listen, if you let me interview you next week, I will bring you a plate full of cookies. The first time I tried to type that too fast and Siri changed the word cookies to ponies. If Shannon does want me to bring her a pony, I will bring a pony for her and cookies for you.